Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. We all have childhood heroes. Mine, Muhammad Ali, and Larry King. I've heard stories of people meeting their childhood heroes and coming away disappointed. For me, it's been the opposite. Both of these men treated me in a way that made me think more of them after I met them than before. That's why this week's episode of Big Questions is so special to me. My guest is Hana Ali, one of Muhammad's nine children. I met Hana when I spent a week with Muhammad to write a cover story about him for Esquire magazine back in 2003. At the time, Muhammad was battling Parkinson's disease, and there were moments when it was difficult for him to speak. Hana had no such trouble. She loves to talk. In fact, she reminded me of the Ali I saw early in his career when he was known as the Louisville Lip. At one point, as Hannah briefly paused, I looked over at Muhammad and said, she talks like you. Muhammad rolled his eyes, shook his head, and made a motion with his right hand, the top four fingers quickly and repeatedly coming down on the thumb, like a mouth that just wouldn't stop jabbering. Hannah and I laughed, and have been friendly ever since. Hannah's got a book coming out called At Home with Muhammad Ali. It's different from all the other books ever written about Ali because it looks at him through the eyes of a child. A little background, Ali had four wives. None of his children came from his first wife, Sonji. Four of his children came from his second, Belinda. Hannah and her famous sister Layla, the boxer, were from Ali's third marriage, that to Veronica Porsche. Two of Ali's children were from women Ali never married, and his last child, Assad, was adopted by Muhammad and his fourth wife, Lani, who guided and protected Ali through the fight with Parkinson's. As you'll hear in the conversation that follows, Ali made sure all of his children understood their attachment, sometimes The moms and children were around him in the same place and at the same time, which makes him a very interesting dad. Hannah's book looks at this man through the audio tapes he made when she was a young girl and passed on to her and through his breakup with her mom. It had to be a tough book for Hannah to write because writing a memoir about your parents can feel like a betrayal. But I think you'll find in our conversation the essence of Muhammad his ability to connect with so many people. Larry King had the same essential quality, which, when I look down deep, is probably the reason that I felt so linked to both of them. So this hour is really about connection. I guess it should come as no surprise to me that my sponsors are all about connection too. I've been speaking about Sportique for a while now, and how Sportique hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants are so soft you won't want to get out of them. But here's something you might be interested to know. You may already be wearing Sportique threads without even being aware of it. That's because you may be wearing Sportique threads decorated with the logos of your favorite NBA team or college. Because many of those hoodies and sweats are made by Sportique. So Sportique connects a lot of people. And if you want to connect all the people in your company 
or your group with a custom-made Sportique sweatshirt or T-shirt that has your logo, email me and I'll pass on the message to my pals Matt and Jason at Sportique and they'll take care of you. Use Sportique to connect your team because whatever your team does, everybody in it will be more relaxed and confident in Sportique threads. So check them out. You'll be glad you did. That's Sportique, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E dot com. My other sponsor is the definition of connection. Just heading into a WeWork, you're going to meet people you've never met on the elevator, at the reception desk, at the water cooler, at communal tables. WeWork provides whatever office space you need, but if you're open to it, you're also going to have the chance to have conversations with the random people you encounter, which is why many companies send creative people to work at WeWork so they'll make those out-of-the-box connections. Hey, one idea can make all the difference in the world and certainly in your life. So check out WeWork at www.we.co slash cal for 20% discount. Remember, the Global Access Pass gives you space in any WeWork around the globe, which means you're always at home wherever you go. Now, let's take a look at the word connection through Muhammad Ali in the words of his daughter, Hannah. Hannah Ali, I'm looking at a book that you have written on the table. It's right between us. Mm -hmm. I have known you've been writing this book for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking all along, man, what is it going to take to write this book? This was like your thriller in Manila. This was your <laughs> big fight. That was funny. <laughs> because you basically are telling the world about your dad, mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali, but you're also talking about, writing about the relationship with your mom and the relationship between your mom and your dad. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of guts to confront and put on paper. Yes. Um, when I decided to turn the book into a memoir, I was sort of, you know, pre-warned reading about how it would be emotional and therapeutic, but I didn't really know how deeply it would affect me or just how emotional it would be until I started doing it. And that's because mainly I had to, like you said, revisit. Not, not only painful times, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but you're learning about things that you didn't know. Right. I learned a lot that I didn't know, mainly from my father's audio recordings. Um, well, explain that. How, how did these recordings come about? And so my father made, my father made about, I'm guessing, a hundred tapes. They're about 30 minutes long, little tiny cassette tapes. Um, uh, 60 minutes, 30 minutes long. 30 minutes so, on each side. Yeah. Old school, little so, yeah, micro school, cassettes. Yes. Yeah. Some of them are the ones that are 60 minutes on either side, but there's not as many of those. But anyway, there's about, I'm guessing, 80 hours worth of recordings spanning from 1979 to like mm, 1984, I think the last few tapes were in. But the majority of the recordings were in 79 and 80. And that's when you were about, what, three or four years old? Yes, I was three and a half years old, around that age. And he's recording different various things, me and Layla, 
getting ready for school, singing to us at bed at night, me waking him up, telling him I want a pickle and a popsicle at 12, 12 midnight and him running down to get it for me or talking to various celebrities about things that are going on in the world or just random stuff and being parenting or whatever, talking about the trips that he was taking recently to, he was going to Peking and um, they wanted him to be their official boxing trainer. He's talking about that. He's documenting it, documenting him, his involvement in freeing hostages. And Why do you think that he wanted to leave this behind? He was the most like photographed person on the planet. He had cameras around him constantly. Why do you think that he wanted to do these recordings and keep them and then pass them on to you? Well, to answer the first question with why he did it, my father was always very history conscious, that he, which is something he reminds us of on like every other recording. I'm so glad I'm so history conscious. I'm always thinking about history or you're going to be so glad I did this and life is so short and beautiful and it goes by so fast and these little moments that people don't know about that are happening around, you know, he, I think it was a few reasons. One, he was ahead of his time. He knew that there would be valuable and relevant in some way because he was famous and because of the things that he was doing that were political, you know, at the time, like freeing hostages or whatnot, or things that were going on, and he wanted to document it. And in the recording, he actually says on one of them, you know, one day these will be played on some great radio station if they pay the price. <laughs> he even recorded him, you know, himself coming home in the, in the, in the um, airports and Howard Bingham snoring and- Howard being Howard, his best friend Yes, Howard Bingham photographer. is his photographer, best friend. <laughs> Right. This is Howard Bingham snoring. Let's move in, you know. And Carolyn is this is how is this how he snores at home? And how do you get any sleep? And you know, so it's just so funny. But he okay, signing off Muhammad Ali's great radio station, you know. So he had different reasons. He wanted he he said that um, we grew up so fast, and these moments when we were little kids and running around made him so happy. And I think that he he even said on one recording he wished that he had tapes of himself when he was that small. I'm sure most people do, because these little moments, you'll be able to look back in the future, hear your voice, hear yourself talking to your father. And, you know, so I always used to say when I found out about them that he made essentially the first reality show, you know, home reality you show. You know, it, it's interesting because now everybody's got a cell phone mm -hmm. and everybody's recording these moments. Mm -hmm. But back then, he was actually seeing the way things were going to be. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. He was always ahead of his time. He knows it. He says it. Because this is not when people, you know, I mean, I just recently found out that Marlon Brando made tapes. They weren't necessarily the same that my father made. He was pretty much making an audio diary of Marlon Brando, talking about certain things about why he made films and why he didn't like acting, you know, etc. Uh, my father is actually recording the things that were going on around him, friends, family, his children, the moments of us laughing, singing. And I think he just wanted us to have a piece of our our history and to be able to look back on that because we were gonna, you know, we wouldn't appreciate it or understand it or know it. And he always said on so many recordings, you're gonna be glad that I did this. This is for you, Han and Layla, or this is for you, Han and Layla and Veronica. Or and I think that he's um saying that they're for us is because he made them within our family. He had so many families, you know. So the recordings were made with when he was married to my mother in our home. So and I was the one that was always with him, so naturally I'm on so many of them. Let's just give everybody a background on like where you were in his life mm -hmm. when, when you came into the world. Okay. So uh, your dad had been married uh, before. Yes. Do you want to just okay. guide us forward? Yes. So my father was married to his second wife, Belinda Boyd, Khalila, who he had Miriam, his firstborn child, the twins and little Muhammad with. And my mother, Veronica Porsche, came into the picture. She met him uh, in Salt Lake City, 
This is the story of their meeting is in the book. Yes, it is. And I used to get it wrong thinking also like everyone else because of the movie Ali that they met in Zaire. They didn't actually meet there. So my mother and a group of other a group of, a group of girls were actually picking him up at the airport and driving him to a exposition fight or something or somewhere to help promote the fight. And he was he ignored her the whole entire trip. So he was shy and he later told her she was so beautiful he was scared of her and he was flirting with her friend or the girl sitting next to her the whole time. And uh, they didn't you know exchange numbers or do anything like that at the time. Later my father found out from Don King that that beautiful girl that he was so smitten over is also coming to Zaire. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, you're lying. She's coming. He was so excited. So she got off of the plane. He was excited. And he, he went there to see her. And I learned a lot of this because he actually sang on a tape recording to her an account of their first meeting, a meeting with all these details. And my mother confirmed it. So I found this one tape recording, tape cassette that was not with the tapes that my father gave me. They were in my mother's belongings in her storage unit. And she said, here you go, because she knew that I had his collection and gave it to me. So when I when I when we discovered that tape, I went home and listened to it. And it was just literally I was uh, they weren't married yet. He was fighting Ken Norton and um, I was one years old laying beside them while he sang to her, recounting the events of their first meeting or their second meeting in Zaire. And, um, you know, I, I, I wrote that it was bittersweet because <laughs> he's like casually talking about how you know, Belinda knew the fine girls had got in, but she didn't know what I was thinking, you know, <laughs> that I was waiting for you. And so I thought myself, oh my gosh, you know, um, it was bittersweet because as one family was, and one love was blossoming, one was ending, and as one family was starting, another one was being torn apart. And, you know, because that was the effect of it, you know, so he had had his own reasons for why he wanted that marriage to end. It was before he met my mother. He just felt that the it would be, it would be embarrassing for his his wife and his children if he divorced her. So he wanted her to file. So those aren't details that I got into because they were not my secrets to share. <laughs> Everyone has secrets, every family. So I just sort of, you know, stuck to the story of my mother, my parents and tried to explain exactly the, you know, the things that were going on at the time. And um, she was only 18. It, it was often reported that she was 25, you know, but she was 18 years old when she met him. Uh, they had her wearing a suit, you know, when she was in that. He made her look even older than she was when she, in, you know, in the movie Ali. But I was actually. Well, this is an interesting <clears throat> question. What's it like to see right. a movie of your dad, and then you're thinking, "Oh, that's how it happened." Well, and then you come yeah, to right. find out, right. no, that's right. It's not how it happened. I already had known that it wasn't necessarily a hundred percent accurate. I didn't know what how how many details were off. And I knew that because my, not only my father, but my mother always told me, but I did not know that they didn't meet in Zaire. I never thought to even ask that. I didn't know that they had met several weeks earlier for the first time. I thought he first saw her for the first time in Zaire. So the only thing I knew was that Belinda didn't go home because the kids were sent, sick, but that daddy sent her. So, and they don't get into why. So I didn't um, in the film. So I did, I knew little details like that, you know, I knew that they were supposed to get divorced already. He didn't just meet and fall in love with a new woman and just toss her aside. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. You know, there's a picture of your dad with a bunch of the kids in, in the book. Mm -hmm. do, do all the kids get along very well? Yes. And it was so funny is, you know how there's always some truth in stories in the news? The one story that broke out after our father passed that had zero, zero truth to it was... In the UK, they reported that we were all fighting over the inheritance. 
that's not true. We would have been disinherited if we fought over the inheritance. <laughs> so dad, there was no fighting. There was everyone got along. We were actually on a group text, all of us sharing back and forth. You know how funny this is. You know, haha, lol. We wish we got eight million. You know, so they're like, so you're wow. fighting over. <laughs> so that was there was like absolutely. It was so peaceful, amicable. Nothing. I mean, there was no drama between any of anybody. Not between Lonnie and us. Not between the kids and us. So that was a hundred thousand percent inaccurate. And other than that, we see stories that sometimes come out, and there's some truth to them even though they're exaggerated or they got the details wrong, but there was just no truth to that. So we have no idea where that came from. I mean, I don't even know where that came, if they made it up, but um, anyway, so yeah, there was, we get along and that's all because of the fact that our father brought us together as kids, made sure that we all played together, said that you have different mothers and, but you guys are sisters and I want you to grow up and love each other and respect each other. And he made sure that we were friends. So how many children all together? Nine now with Assad. Assad was adopted in, after long after, like I mentioned in, in you know in the introduction, um, Assad was adopted long after he made these recordings, so he's not part of the book as far as the recordings go. So I wanted to just make mention to that and put a photo in there of him, so he did he wasn't you know excluded from it. But um, there's you nine know, of us. It's, yeah. a, it's interesting because you in in the book bring up times where he was under like financial stress. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people who were relying on him mm -hmm. that he constantly had to bring in money. And then, like, from the time you were a kid, uh, he, his last fight's, what, 1980? 80, yeah. I think it was 81. Trevor Burbick with 80, 81. Yeah, right. uh, and after that, he's not fighting anymore mm -hmm. and bringing in big purses. Well, not only that, a third of his earnings went to the nation, I mean, well, the, the, the Muslims. So my father believed that if you built a mosque, you're guaranteed paradise. That's what the religion teaches. So I don't know how many mosques he built, but it's more than one. So he always gave at least, at the very least, one third of everything. And you have the government, you have taxes, and then he's taking care of everyone. So on this one recording, you know, he's, he, he wants everyone to know. He, he's documenting it. He wanted his children to know that I'm sending your, mother, your mother's money. You know, so any anyone he would send money to, he would record it and talk about that. It did, all this stuff didn't make it into the book, but he wanted us to know because, you know, for the future, my, my siblings, you know, because he was married to my mom at the time, so there was no need to send her money for us. But everyone else, he wanted to make sure the children he had out of wedlock, you know, I'm sitting, you know, this is what I just sent. He had Marge, his executive secretary, getting on the phone. He'd call from the intercom or whatever and have it recorded. So... And he would say, "This I want you to know I'm taking care of you, and this is, I'm trying everything I can to, to provide for you guys. And was it painful for you to see your dad under that stress? Yes. It, it was hard for me because my father was so generous, and there's nothing he ever wanted. So what really, strangely, what really made me feel a little emotional was hearing about this land he wanted so bad in Paso Robles. He talks about this land that he wanted on a lot of recordings and he sounded like a little boy in the candy store on so many tapes when he was describing it. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, he just sounded like he wanted it so bad, but he didn't have the cash to get it. And he had a dream. He wanted to start a boxing club, you know, the Muhammad Ali triple, I forget, crown headquarters for boxing. So, and he wanted to train fighters and have this big camp. So it was like Deer Lake, but he always said it was 10 times better because you can drive up, even like flying, as you know. So there are a lot of tapes of that, and I, I put some of that in the book where he's discussing it. So I found out there was like multiple reasons for why he went back to the ring, but I know my dad. 
and daddy, and he, he, he documents it for the world to know too, because there's so much speculation. It wasn't just about money, but everything that the money could do, you know? So it's like, he didn't just need money to have money. He wanted money to take care of people. He was worried about his mother and going to the doctor and insurance. And, you know, he, he used to say on the tapes, even if I could just take care of myself and my present family, I'd be okay, but I'm taking care of all these people. And as people are calling him asking for money, and that's, he was actually, I don't want to embarrass any family members. So I don't say who he was talking to when he was talking about the, you know, how, you know, listing his problems financially. But it was a, it was a family member and an extended family member. And I, he was trying to, they were calling for more money and needing more help. So he's listing all the things he has to do and all the people he has to take care of. And he's saying, listen, let me just tell you my bills and what I've got to take care of, you know? But at the end of it, he says, send me your bills. You know, so that was, he said, that was he said I, I edited out some of it, it was too long. He's like, no, don't go making new bills. Just send me the ones you got now and I'll take care of them. Wow, that was <laughs> so, your dad. Yes, that was daddy. So he still wanted people to know, but he figured, you know, he wanted to help everybody. So he saw how money made problems go away. You know, so made them people happy. So he wanted to help them. He had his parents he was taking care of. He had everybody, you know, so his mother. Was, was, was it like, was it difficult for you to be finding all these things out? And where were you in the, in the process? Uh, how long ago was it that you decided, I'm going to do this book? Okay. So this is sort of like, this book is a story in itself. How can I make this short and sweet? Okay. The first I just, I didn't even, this book wasn't even a thought until the record, I got the recordings. So when he gave me the recordings, I started listening to the recordings. When he gave you the recordings, where were you? I was in, when they were actually mine, I was in Michigan. Right. So we we just finished or we're finishing up The Soul of a Butterfly. That's an, yes, another book. Our, the book that we I wrote for with him. It's by him. And it's just a bunch of little essays about the defining moments in his life, reflecting from birth to, you know, the, the present time, which was 2004, 2003. So um, I had discovered the recordings a few years before that when he was visiting in Los Angeles and he just pulled out the tapes and dumped them on the floor. So I was like, what's this? And he started playing them. And I was like, oh my God, like a gold mine. I couldn't believe it. And let me just explain to you guys. My father will give you any amount of money. He'll give you his championship belts. He'll give you anything you ask for. When I wanted to take one recording, he was he just held it to his heart and sort of turned away like, you know, like, no. I was like, oh my God, he's never done that. So he ended up letting me go home with a few of them. But let me just tell you, I said, daddy, look in my eyes. I promise you I won't lose these, but I've got to take this. <laughs> and the ones I took were one of the funniest recordings to me that I heard, which was him talking to someone. I don't use their real name. I didn't want to embarrass them. I called him Jack Elliott in the book and he's uh, playing a joke on him. So that was to me, it was so funny to actually hear it. Oh my God. So that and me and daddy singing together and him telling me bedtime stories. So I took a few tapes with me and he, he kept the rest of them. It, it's, it's interesting that yeah. that would, would not be give me those tapes. so close to him. Oh my God. He's never done that. That's when I knew. So I didn't try to keep asking. Like, he's never done that. There's nothing he won't give you. You can ask him for any, even a stranger in the streets, not even just just me. Yeah, because He'll give he you a stranger he, he would meet, boxing. He would child. meet strangers. Give anything. And give take anything them away. home. People. Yes. Who, he brought, he, we used to come home to family, you know, we, they'd be in the car with us. And my mom would then put them in a hotel, you know, because they were strangers, you know, homeless people. It was a regular occurrence. He thought it was a sin to have so many rooms that were empty. So, so people he would home. meet homeless people on the street, and bring he, them yes, home. Yes, there was a female, especially, yeah, the shoes, a female, the homeless oh, woman. Seeing somebody they, yeah. 
in difficulty. Anybody, yeah, especially women that were you know older and alone, and sometimes had kids. So they would come home with us. They'd be sitting in. A, he'd feed them. He'd want to take them by clothes. I mean, this was like a normal thing. So. But those recordings, when I finally received them, was in Michigan after we wrote the book, and I went home with them and started listening to them. And then my favorite tape, and the tape that moved me the most, was him talking directly to my future self while my little three-year-old self sat listening, telling me why he made the tapes in a in, in ex, you know extensively, like a long. I use it at the end of the book. He he did that randomly through tapes, but really short, like just a line here or there, and the phone would click or ring and cut him off. And I was like, darn. And then all of a sudden I was listening to one tape and then here it was, and he gets in detail and explains why, and it was so moving. It felt like a love letter, an audio love letter, the way he opened it and closed it. So that was one of my favorite recordings, would probably be my favorite recording. And, of course, and him praying, there's a tape of him praying that I love because I feel like I'm praying with him. You know, even though he's just reciting the Islamic traditional prayers, and I think he actually misses a surah. My, my sister Maymay, who knows, she's a devout Muslim, told me he missed a surah. So I was like, I didn't know. <laughs> but anyway, I used to listen to that every morning for years. And I'll probably start again. It's on my phone. And just like pray with daddy. It's six minutes long. So he's reciting the prayer and he's explaining how he does it. So I love that. But um, so you have these, he gave me the tapes. Mm -hmm. You got these tapes. Mm -hmm. You know how much they mean to him. Oh my God, yeah. And where does the idea for this book come in? Because it's more than just your dad's tapes. Right. You're saying, oh, no, whoa, 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 yes. whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm gonna go back and I'm right. going to understand my childhood, the relationship between my mom and my right. dad. Now, that is not right. an easy book to write. No. So this is how it happened. So when he gave me the tapes, and that was the 2003, time frame. I was originally only going to do a book transcribing the recordings because he's so funny, they're so entertaining, there's more than enough, and it could it would be able to survive, I thought, on its own that way, where the recordings tell their own story. So that was my first way of doing it. So I started transcribing, listening and transcribing, and I felt immersed and lost in the past. Like I felt, I can't even tell you, put into words, the feeling, like I felt like I was like back at Fremont Place as a little girl, like a fly on the wall, just you know, just sort of like pulled back in as I listened. Because he's so theatrical, my father. And, you know, you could hear the sounds, the familiar sounds. My mom's birds chirping in the background. Marge is executive secretary. Abdel is assistant. People calling and calling the, him. He was always calling the time. At the tone, the time will be 6.36 and 20 seconds. That's a big memory <laughs> that I forgot about. And I was like, oh, my God, I remember that, you know? So it's a, it's a, it seemed like there were just some right. amazing moments from your childhood. And yet there were moments where you're seeing your dad go away mm -hmm. and it's so painful. And watching to him you. stumble and not understanding why. And people telling me it's because, oh, he had a he fell off a scooter or hit his head, or oh, it's because of the way he used to cough. And then I would go around not coughing, thinking if I coughed, I would talk like that when I was older. I mean, they you know they're not telling the truth and they don't know, and you know something's wrong, but you don't know what it is, and you're a little girl. And I remember the worrying and having to see a psychologist because I worried about him so much and finding him sleeping out and outside on the um, you know the, the patio sofa because he, daddy had this thing about waking people up. He would not ring the doorbell if he was late and he lost his key. He wouldn't do it. Like he, seriously, like he would not. Even in the presence later in life, he would still not like waking people up. If someone was sleeping, it could be a stranger, he would shish you, you know? So he, he was weird, strange, he had a strange thing about that. He liked people to sleep peacefully, no matter who they were. So he wouldn't ring the doorbell. He'd lose his keys and then I would look all, you know, I thought he was kidnapped once and ran around the whole house. I shared that story where I was looking for him and I was like so frantic. And it was soon after that that I ended up going to psychologists because <laughs> my mother was wor worried 
that I worried about him so much. But you're going through these these memories of like how fun it was to be with your dad, and then the painful memories of your parents getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And you're not seeing your dad right. that much anymore. So this so is you how you gotta revisit is, right. all so this. So this is stuff. how it came. The memoir came about because after the second time I sent it to my, I'm sorry, my agent sent it to my 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 editor of the book. He was like Bob Bender, Simon and Schuster. He did the Soul of a Butterfly. Um, you know, everyone's kept saying the same thing. You know, no, we need some more backstory. So I sat for a while. And I thought, I know, I'm gonna do a book and give every sibling a chapter. We all tell our stories, but then my memories were top heavy and it didn't, wasn't, it wasn't working. So then I just got a phone call from a friend and long story short, she said, Hey, you should read this book called What Remains. It's a beautiful memoir. It's haunting by Carol Waswell. And it has to do with her relationship with JFK Jr.'s cousin, who was her husband and Carolyn Bassett, who was her friend. And it's a beautiful story and he's dying of cancer. And, you know, JFK ends up dying before he did. But she wrote it in a beautiful way. And I thought, you know what? That's what I have to do. I need to write a memoir. And reading that book um, made me feel like I could do it. I thought, okay, let me see how she did this. It's the first memoir that I can remember reading that's an actual memoir. And I thought, um, I just fell in love with it. And then I got a whole bunch of how-to books on how to write memoir. (laughs) <laughs> and then, seriously, like, I'm not kidding. And improve your writing, how to write memoir, you know, how to tell your story. And just so I did it correctly. Because, you know, like, I, the style of writing I had before was short books or just essay style. I never tried to tell a story consecutively. And I was telling three stories in one here. So I had, this was such a challenge. Were you, were you scared that you, you were in over your head? No, that didn't scare me. I was excited about it because I'm naturally creative. So I'm naturally good at poetry or putting things together in a way that are touching. So I said, okay, I have that part down. Now I just need the technicality. You know, how do you do it? You know, I don't want to be criticized, you know, and critiqued, and I want to do it myself. I didn't want to hire a ghostwriter. So what I did was, the, 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 this is the, the, the challenging part, aside from the emotional stuff, was the fact that I had to find a way to tell the story of the tapes, tell the story of my parents, tell the story of me and daddy in this house, because this is where we live together and it's like a character for me, you know, Fremont Place. So I wanted to find a way to do that in a way that was seamless. And I, it was the most challenging part for me, second to the emotional aspect of it all. So that was hard and difficult just in that way. So the, it was structured and things were left out that I wanted to be in there that didn't have a place. I had to find ways. I actually wrote the story using the, you know, the, I was using a lot of um, newspaper articles I found for backstory and information and facts. And I would check it against my mother and just correct some of the stuff if it was wrong in a storyline, you know, way after reading it. So like- Was your mom okay with you writing the book or was that- She was, she was and she wasn't. So my mother, let me tell you. So my mom, (laughs) my mother is not one of those people that will ask you not to do something. She won't ask you not to do it, but she'll let you know that she's a little, you know, it's bringing up old memories and, whatnot. And she had so much pain that she went through around the time of my father because of the fact that when she left him, you know, and how it looked, regardless of her reasons or whatever else. So was it hard for you to get into those reasons in the book? Um, only because I, they say in order to write memoir, you have to betray family and I wasn't going to do that. Right. So I did as much as the truth telling as I could without, you know, selling anyone out for a, a good book. I wasn't going to do that. So I didn't know, I wasn't lying, and I wasn't, but I wasn't maybe getting into 100,000% of what I could have said. And I don't mean my father protecting my dad. It's not that. If anything, it would make him look better. It's protecting the people that he protected and the secrets that he kept. And they had nothing to do 
with making him look bad, but the contrary. So he already lived his life like an open book. And you already know that. There's no secrets to be found out about him, even the infidelities. You know because he flaunted my mother around while he was married. He didn't hide it. <laughs> it wasn't a secret. He didn't hide any of his baby's mothers. They were with him in pictures. You know, I see them now. I'm like, oh, look, there's Mia's mom. Oh, look, you know, it's Pat. Oh, there's, there's uh, you know, Aisha, Kalia's mom. And they're all there together. And I'm like, oh, mommy too in the picture. Oh, and Lonnie, his future wife. So, <laughs> so my dad had... did not hide anything. He did not. He lived his life like an open book. So there's nothing to discover about him at, at all, unless, you know, at all that's new in terms of his private life as far as women and infidelities. He didn't disrespect women in the you know, physical sense. He didn't try to make them feel bad about themselves. He didn't verbally you know, abuse people. He just liked women. He, he, he was attracted to beautiful women. And he wasn't even the type, my mother used to always say, he didn't go out to clubs. He didn't go out at night. He just, the men around him, the entourage would bring women to him. Even on his recordings, he does not erase the things that will be seen as incriminating. He leaves everything. The truth is all there. If there's a woman he gave his number to and she calls, he doesn't delete and stop the tape and rewind and erase over it. He leaves it on there. Hey, baby, how you doing? You know, <laughs> he's talking for five minutes. Why, some girl why do you met. think he did that? I just, because my dad is so authentic and he's not trying to hide anything about himself. You know, naturally, of course, for the woman in your, when you're married, you're not going to say, hey, I'm cheating on you or I just cheated on you. You lie. But I'm saying just in general, in terms of history and how he's recording the, the, the happenings and everyday things that are happening in his life, he doesn't he doesn't erase it. Even the recording that I use, where, which is what I use to show what my mother went through on that tape. And then that's the one tape that I listen to where she's talking to my dad over the intercom and they get into all the women and how life was for her. You know, at, um, in Chicago, when we lived in the Woodlawn house before we moved to Los Angeles, and he doesn't erase it. You know, and they're t he, she's telling him he's he's saying something about taking someone somewhere, and he, she's like, "Don't you take any woman anywhere. You just stay away from them. Don't give me any excuse to have to fire them because every time I trust you, something happened. What are you talking about? What happened?" And she starts listing the things. No, no, that never happened. She goes, "You already admitted it." And he starts to fib, honest to Allah. That was a little thing he did. He would honest to Allah, meaning he can't swear to God and not tell the truth. But sometimes he would still fib. So she said, don't you dare say Allah because you already admitted it to me. <laughs> and they're telling, and they're talking, and the thing about my parents are, they were so alike in the sense that they weren't disciplinarians. They didn't hold grudges. My mother and my father both never stayed mad. They didn't yell and argue. They got along good. We don't have any memories, not one memory. The only memory that I have of my father and mother at odds was after she slapped me for something and he hit her back. and yelled at her and it was very quick and subtle and he said sorry so it was a reflex with his arm you know it, he was hit, protecting he hit her you. arm yeah his reflex was his arm just swinging out like no like to slap her hand away from hitting me but that was that was the only memory that i have and and, and he yelled at her and um that was it don't you hit her so that's the only memory i have of any confrontation i was a little girl but it stayed in my brain it just it resonated because i was like it was so quick and abrupt I mean, there's no other, even Layla, I mean, there's, we have no memories of them arguing. They got along well. My mother wasn't a type that yelled or screamed or she didn't try to compete with him. She didn't try to, you know, she just was very quiet and she would stand up for herself and vice versa, but it wasn't like in an argumentative way, you know? So she was very just poised and soft-spoken and she just dealt with the pain. The same thing with my father did. Daddy just dealt with pain in life. He didn't complain about things. I mean, up until the end, you didn't know if he had a headache. You didn't know. You had to watch him carefully. I mean, my father passed kidney stones and they never knew. 
you know, because he never once complained. Wow. Yeah, Lonnie just knew from the effects, you know, and he was, he did in his 70s, you know, so he had the highest pain tolerance. <laughs> I just don't even understand it, to be honest with you. It's just emotionally anything. He could bear the pain. He would just bear the pain and keep living. He never complained about anything. He never questioned second. You can't even, I bet you, you can't even find anything in history where he's giving an interview where he's complaining about the fact that he lost three and a half years of his prime fighting years. He said, well, what happens happened. You know, it's in the past. Now I can't go back. That was his approach. You know, everything was, there's no sense in just thinking about what's, what's done. You can't fix was, it. Was he always thinking forward? I would say yes. And spiritually, you know, so and I think he was born that way. He liked to credit Islam for a lot, but really the truth is he was born knowing that he was here for something great. He was like when I hear how his mother would talk about him or other family members when he was a little boy, the way he would think and deal with things. He was just a kind-hearted, loving, peaceful person, spiritual always, you know. So I think that um, obviously, you know, he was put on this earth for a special purpose, a big one. So he already he came to the earth equipped with a lot that we we are still trying to learn and attain spiritually and emotionally, I think, as during our lifetime. He just sort of came with the knowledge already, you know, down that way. He came to the earth that way. So that's what I used to say. He just came to the earth that way. So I think that my dad, that's why I used to say to him, he's the eighth wonder of the world and an angel on earth. Like you're here, you're human, but you have the toughest lessons down compassion, forgiveness, and, you know, self-respect and love for people. And just like the prophets, like Jesus, like I tell him all the time, like he was just an abnormal human being in that way, more than anything other way. There's a lot of exceptional athletes, but I think his spirit, his spirit accomplishments, his soul, his kindness, his decency is his greatest accomplishment, especially coming out of the times and he survived and lived. You know, terrible people in the world when he was coming up and had the treated people. And he never had a grudge against any one religion, uh, race because of it. You know, he loved everyone. So even when you catch him talking in the 60s, that was trying to spread black pride and love and talking about the truth of what they were dealing with. But he didn't hate anyone. Look at his entourage, look at the people around him. He accepted everybody and never had a grudge about it, never felt bad about it. Just, that's amazing. That's a, that's a miracle in itself to not be affected, you know? So if anything, it made him love more, accept more, forgive more. And, you know, so he, yeah, daddy was a role model, I think. And that's why so many people love and admire him because you don't see that anymore. You don't see that it's, even then, you know? So, yeah. so, yeah. Well, it's interesting because when you have a hero, mm -hmm. you often don't see them mm -hmm. in, in human terms. Mm -hmm. You see the best thing you wanted to see about them. Mm -hmm. Maybe in, in your dad's case, for me, I'm looking at him when I'm 13 mm -hmm. or 14 in 1970 when he came back, or then 71 when he fought Joe Frazier. And you're watching him on a big screen and you're seeing the hero's journey, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the comeback, and then to lose that fight, but come back and beat mm -hmm. Joe Frazier and then beat George Foreman and regain the mm -hmm. crown that was taken away from him. And the amazing thing was that the week I got to spend with you all, he was even more heroic to me because he was just mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like the type of person that you would want to be your friend. You're right. He's like a daddy is like a big kid. I think it's one of the reasons people love him so much. He literally was like a big kid. He loved bubble gum. He liked to put all five pieces in his mouth, you know, all the time. I'm not kidding you. And I take it out and look at how big it is. <laughs> like that was like the normal night with him. And every day, bubble gum was the gift that he loved. And I mean, every pack 
it would go in his mouth so big he couldn't he couldn't close his mouth like he, I'm not kidding you. So <laughs> a grown a grown man, <laughs> but he, my dad, uh, he used to like he loved to leave the house and to go sit in his motorhome. It would be parked in the driveway in the farm. Now I know where your love of motorhomes comes from. I never understood it. Well, I did, but I didn't. But I love, I, yeah, I'm just, that's my dream, to live in a motorhome for at least a year because I know I can't live in it forever because my husband would never do that. And the world would probably think I was broke or something if I tried. And I thought, who cares? Like, that's my dream, to live in a little space and just travel. So, of course, I'd get sick of it eventually and get back into a, you know, a house or something. But I would I would have no problem. And, um, yeah, that's why Lonnie's always saying, you're just, you're, you're your father's daughter for real, boy, you know, because he used to want her to do that. She's like, that's not happening. But Daddy loved to go out in the motorhome and just, sit in it and he would bring me with him so I have a lot of memories of traveling in the motorhome because it was like I remember just being scared really honestly because he didn't drive a straight line <laughs> and it was really bumpy I remember being bumpy so I think he used to go into places he shouldn't be driving so a lot of my memories of being on that motorhome and bumping around the roads off roads but uh he loved to go out there and sit on there and just work on his um his spiritual writings and stuff and sign autographs, pre-sign autographs so that he could pass them out to people because he couldn't sign quick enough in a crowd and transition. So he spent a lot of time at home doing that, going over fan mail, answering the fan mail. If there was a number, he'd have me call them back. And, Why um, do you think he cared so much about people that, that everybody could get a little piece of him, whether it be an autograph or a photo? Yeah, I, you know, I wish I could tell you. He really, which I don't know, because it was a very deep, deep feeling. He loved people. I'm not kidding you. Like, he needed them. I mean, Daddy loved people. Like, I mean, he was Jesus or something. Like, he loved them like Jesus. The stories of Jesus tells you that. I mean, he loved strangers. He didn't want you to hurt their feelings. He would point them out, especially people that looked like they were weaker or uh, blended into the crowd and didn't get noticed. He'd want to pick them out of the crowd, point to them, tell them, you know, make them feel good. He loved the idea of making people feel good. And it might have something to do with him being a little boy and knowing what it felt like, the pain of being refused by Sugar Ray Robinson when he would not give him his autograph. You know, because I don't know, I share that story briefly. I try to do go over that stuff quickly because I know that's yeah, the stuff that most people just, know. Yeah, but just tell the story. When he was tr on the way to the Olympics, not on the way physically that day, but when he was trying to work towards going to the Olympics, and I think he already had like a, um, the golden gloves behind him, and the Olympics was ahead of him. He, he and his brother Rachman, Rudy, were in... Um, uh, is it New York or Chicago? I think it New, was New York. York. Where he ever, yeah. And uh, Sugar, Sugar Ray, Ray Robinson. Sugar had a club Sugar Ray, yeah, in Harlem. It's called Sugar Ray's. That's right, right, Harlem. Sugar Ray Robinson was my father's childhood idol. So he waited outside that club for Sugar Ray because he couldn't get in. He was too young for hours and hours and hours. And when Sugar Ray finally came out, my father walked up to him and he said, I love you and you. I look up to you and I want to be like you. And I'm going to, my name is Cassius Clay and I'm going to be a world champion one day. And I'm going to, I'm going to the Olympics. I'm working towards going to the Olympics. And can I please have your autograph? And he said, sorry, kid, I don't have time. So he never for, he said he never forgot that feeling. And my father is not a person, like I said, that complains or about anything. So when he tells stories like that, they're, they were a huge impact, you know, for him to actually even tell it. So he, he never wanted one person. That's why I understand later in life why it was so difficult for him to even if he got to sign 100 autographs, if there was 102 people, he didn't feel like he succeeded. He wanted everyone to have one. So and then with Parkinson's, it became harder. So. He would just spend hours, and I'm telling you, hours signing autographs. Did the Parkinson's develop at a pace that made it uh, easy for you to understand and react to him, mm -hmm. or were you constantly surprised? 
it didn't even feel like it was happening because we were so used to it. It developed very slowly, gradually over time, and I would never really notice it until we went back and looked back in time. Because it happened, it was like we experienced so many, many deaths with my father. Because, and what I mean by that is- What the, a statement. Well, that's what it felt like. Because if you really- if So I, if many, I, many I felt like deaths. there was a lot of many, many endings. So I say, I call them many deaths, but like many endings of something. The, there was the end of him being able to, you know, talk clear, talk at all, walk on his own. Like there were little gradual things that ended and they were gradual progressions of Parkinson's. So having to deal with that, the end of us being able to walk out into the street and go together, the end of him being able to drive on his own, there were so many, many deaths in my mind. And then he was always preparing us for the ultimate death is when he left the earth. Since I was five years old, he had me scared to go to sleep at night. You know, when I was a little girl, he was always telling us, I'm gonna die one day. We're all gonna die, you're gonna die. This life is nothing. You don't live for this life, we live for the eternal life. We live for God and that's all that matters. And that was his excuse, not excuse, but reasoning for why he did all the things he did. So when we asked questions or he'd bring homeless people home, he always would teach us some lesson. It was like living this nonstop nuggets of gold, like you called them, you know, when I first met you all my life. So, and then he didn't just talk about it. We got to watch him do it. So Layla and I, when we were little kids, we thought it was cool to go find homeless people to give money to. So on the weekends, we gave our money away. We thought that was cool. We'd get our bicycles and have to go and have this hunt looking for a homeless person. We got to find a homeless person to buy some food for. And I remember my heart was broken. I don't share this story because the first person I found, I was like seven or eight. And I got him cheeseburger and McDonald's because that's what I liked. I thought they're gonna be so happy, and then when he was gone, he was he was sitting on Wilshire Boulevard and in front of the at the time Bob's Big Boy was there, and he left the burger in the bag and didn't eat it, and I was like, oh, so I didn't understand, you know, because I was like, he didn't like it, you know, he didn't even eat it, but I guess he didn't want the burger. But <laughs> so I learned later, just give them the money, let them buy what they want. But when I was a little girl, I'd buy them food, so and we would look for them. But that was the first time we did it. I remember because we wanted to be like Daddy, and we, he used to make us feel like it was the rock star thing to do to be a good person, to give, like, you know, that's what he idolized. That's what he taught us and talked about. So to us, that was what was cool. And kids are impressionable. So you got to, and that's proof, you know, of that, I think. So we looked for people to help. You know, in school, we would stand up for the kids are being bullied. You know, all the things that he taught us, his little stuff, there's so much I didn't put in here, but all these things we learned from our father. It's interesting when you use those words, many deaths, well, yeah, because they're endings, you know, yeah. so a bunch of little mini endings sounds so less dramatic. But, is, but it, is that, I'm wondering, is that helpful in a way? Because once you understand that's the process, then, yeah. okay, yeah. this is... It made it easier than if it, it were all of a sudden. It did. I think the tragedies are what happens to people in life when you just, I mean, we're all going to die. No one wants to think about it, you know, so no one wants to think about they're going to end one day. And I don't think anyone really believes it's going to happen to them. I know my dad didn't. I remember one day there was an article in the paper or something about him being dead and he loved, he got a kick out of those. Oh, did I make the front page, you know? Oh, he loved because it. people were saying that Muhammad Ali died yeah, he and he was still alive. He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he loved to say he was <laughs> he was 70 when he was really 60, you know? Oh, he wanted to hear, oh, you look good for your age, you know? He was so funny. But he, we were sitting there and I said, Danny, they're saying you're dead again or dying again or something, blah, blah, blah. He's like, uh, front page is the first question. I was like, uh, no, it's an article in the magazine. He's put his head down. <laughs> so, and he goes, I ain't dying. I ain't dying and turned it like I ain't never dying, you know, <laughs> it's wow. funny, but he knows he, he's he like I said, he taught us, though, that you're going to be dead one day. But I think that that was hard for him to accept. So that's why he talked about it so much like a wow, like he was always thinking about it. So did, but, did, did you talk with him about his funeral before the fact? Because it had to be really well planned. Lonnie did. Okay. Lonnie and daddy and the lawyers planned it all. He said he wanted everyone to be able to come from every religion. He wanted the tickets to be free. 
He wanted to, they planned it so he knew how he'd go. And I even and I didn't notice until I was in the car and saw all the people and going down Broadway that the dream, and I wrote about this towards the end, but I didn't know until I was actually there that this dream he had that he talked about all the time. I read about it through different throughout the maybe a 20, 30 years of journalism, you'd see random articles where he talked about this reoccurring dream of running down Broadway and all the people in the streets were in big crowds chanting his name and raving at him and cheering him on. And then all of a sudden he took offline and he said, I dream that dream all the time. So I was like, oh my God, it's probably a premonition of this day. He dreamed his, his funeral. Yeah, because I mean, I didn't realize that until we were there. I'm like, oh my God, this is Eddie's dream. All the people are out chanting his name and cheering and waving at him. And he just waved back and just took offline, he said. What oh. happens afterward? Yeah. Mm. What what Feelings, you, like, what, yeah, what are you left with? Well, this is the thing. So when my father was passing away, everyone was like, oh, my God, we can't believe you're doing so well. But I had this strange feeling of, I know this sounds strange, but relief and fear, sadness and peace. And the reason is I was relieved because I was always afraid of how will he go? I hope he's asleep. I hope he's peaceful. I hope he's not going to hurt. You know, I hope he's going to. I used to think, well, I can't. God won't take him like looking terrible. He won't leave him on the earth so bad that he's like salvaged by Parkinson's. He still looked good, you know? So it was like, I couldn't imagine how he was gonna go. Is he gonna, you know, when I would read about certain things, I didn't wanna ever read about Parkinson's. I didn't wanna know the things that would happen to you later. Wow, you didn't so, wanna know. No, I never read about what happens to you. Lonnie would send us books over the years so we knew certain things. I did not read them, not one. And that's only because Daddy was dealing with it so well, he couldn't stop any of it from happening. I had no control over stopping it. It's in God's hands. So um, I just didn't want to know things, certain things. I just dealt with them as they came, just like he did, and lived his life with him and being supportive any way that I could. And it was so helpful because we didn't have time to really be sad other than the fact that we missed the things that were gone now, like the many deaths. Oh, can't talk anymore, the same. Oh, the, the moments are few and f fewer and far further between where he comes alive and alert and says, let's go driving. But it would still happen. Just it would take more time. Weeks would go by before we got one of those, or you know, or when he couldn't talk, could you communicate with him? Yes, because he could talk. With he he. Let me explain. So he he. It's not that he couldn't speak at all. You just couldn't really get understand the words a lot, and it was harder and harder. So if you really wanted to hear him talk and say something, it was a whisper, and usually in the mornings after the day progressed, forget it. Like he just had no. So he we would just ask him a bunch of questions, and he would say yes or no. You know. So it's not that he wasn't alert. Could you look at his face and understand? Um, yeah, because my dad was always very animated, as you know, in life. And if you right. watch him on TV, everything was animation. Fear, happiness, excitement, everything was animated in his eyes and his face. The hard parts for me were not knowing that if there was something he was trying to tell us that we just didn't know. That bothered me. Like I did, damn. Like I can't. I don't know what he's trying to say. Excuse me. Like I don't know, you know, what it is. And he's not satisfied because he's not saying yes, you got it. And I just don't know what it is. Eighty percent of the stuff we would know because he was very routine oriented. Like you know, I knew what he wanted in the morning. I knew he wanted grapes and fruit. I knew he wanted to know when the food was coming. So he didn't have to ask. I said, okay, daddy, Lonnie's cooking the breakfast. I know you want something sweet. There's nothing right now. This is what you're gonna have for sweets later. You know, I'm put on. I put on his favorite, you know, channel they would do the same, which is Westerns. He loved Westerns, so we left it on Westerns. So <laughs> old Westerns and movies about himself or old Elvis movies, but mainly old Westerns. So that's the channel it was always on, no matter what, Westerns. And the, when he would talk really well, like when, when uh, what's his name, that fighter that's always flashing his money around? 
Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, that guy. So <laughs> he had some big fight where he made like 50 million and he was talking that day. It was a great day. We were told him about that fight and it brought him back to life again. Like daddy would be like resurrected. And he was like, the best way for me to explain to people, it was like he was, his little spirit and his light was inside this body that was no longer working 100% correctly. But you still saw it in his eyes, his twinkle and right. how he would, his eyes would dart around so fast the room. And I'm like, oh my God, he's like trapped in there. And he was so cute what? because he would be sitting there and he's fully alert sometimes. And his little eyes are just darting around the room and you see the glow. I'm like, daddy, and his little smile, and he's glowing. And his eyes are darting around all the people and looking up and I say, you hungry? You know, so he had all this energy. So he might not be able to talk. He'll start to talk and you hear a little whisper and then you finish a sentence for him. He's like, so you know what he wants. But he was so content. Like he, you couldn't feel bad because he was, it was like a selfish feeling of feeling bad because it's like, I miss this. I miss that. He wasn't sitting there thinking, he I can't talk getting, or yeah. not at all. He's always, you can see the peace on his face. He was happy. So yeah. always. You know, I remember know, asking yeah. him at one point where... We had like a moment, and I leaned in and I mm -hmm. said, "Well, like, what's it like in there?" Mm -hmm. And he said, "I can't tell you." Really? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because it's difficult. Um, I could see the struggle because he would never. That's the thing about my father. If it was difficult, he would not tell. He's that's his personality. He would never complain. He always felt like. Yeah, it would have made him complain. You know, you just would, explain just, it. It would have made him sound like he was complaining. He would never complain. He never complained. You have to watch. I mean, I'm telling Wow, I'm, not, I'm so I'm, glad you like, told me that. Never, I, now I understand. Daddy never complained. Someone did tell me that one time, and I forgot who it was, that he said to them, the Parkinson's, it's getting me. It's trying to get me. You know, it's some, he would never say that to me, but he said it to someone visiting. But um, he wouldn't share that kind of stuff, you know? So, And then there was one thing I realized, and I didn't really realize what he was going through and had no one to talk to. Until me and daddy, we were in transit somewhere. I forgot where we were going. It was like 2003, 2002. And um, there was a man that had Parkinson's. This older white man was sitting in the um, private like jet like room, you know, waiting for the airplane. Um, and uh, he walked over to him and I, I was with him. He, he excused me actually, but before he did, I got to hear what they were talking about. And he said, um, he, he started talking about what it's like, Parkinson's, how do you deal with this or that? And I've never seen anything like that before. And he's talking to this stranger, man, is it hard for you to something? And he looked at me and he says, go sit over there for a second. Because they start getting into the physical stuff, I guess, with man and wife. You know, and I thought, oh. And that's when I felt like my heart just like felt like it's hurt. Because I he had no friends around, you know. He's living in Michigan. They weren't around. And he had no one to talk to. And it's not his style to talk to anybody. And they didn't have Parkinson's with him. So he felt comfortable enough and just asked the man questions because he wanted to know. He need, these are things that he had no one to ask or didn't ask anyone. And he saw some stranger that had Parkinson's that was shaking with him and started asking him questions. And that man, whoever he was, I don't know to this day, has that story and knows what my father asked, you know? But I only heard a little bit of it. And I knew he wanted to know about that physical stuff and if he could still do it and how he did, manages to do certain things. So I know that he had questions. I know it's just, maybe he asked his doctors, you know? But um, like I said, he wouldn't complain. He always said that it's God's will, and he always found the spiritual side of it, like how he's helping other people that want to die because they have this kind of disease or they think they can't get out and keep living. My father just dealt with stuff. When, mm -hmm. when you were writing this book, yes. uh, did it help you get through 
the after effects, the, the, uh, following the funeral, and because it gives your mind a place to go, gives you a direction. You've got to get something accomplished. No, it didn't, didn't help. Didn't help. No, because um, the why I cried was I was so grateful with how my father left the earth. I was so grateful. I was so happy that it would, I would be torn like it was like a mix like so you're talking it about was like a, the moment of passage or the yes, funeral the, the, the moment, moment of, of passage, passage and everything else but how he passed number one was why i was so worried that's why i had the relief when he left because i thought he's older he lived a great life he went sleeping with all his kids around him he didn't just know he was he didn't know he was dying he just went to the hospital like normal routine checkup and his organs started to fail because of the sepsis so he was being kept alive with you know machines for like a day when they saw that his organs were failing to give time for us to get there. But he was induced and put into a coma so he didn't wake up. So that was, he just slept so much. You know, they say when your body's preparing to leave the earth, you sleep more. And he was sleeping more. And I noticed him staring into corners when we were at home together alone, like people do when they're older, like looking in the corners. And I would say, you see Mama Bird and Papa Cash? And he'd say, no. But he would just stare into the corners sometimes. And it was really strange. And a lot of people say they notice that in their loved ones and they're getting closer. So I knew the first time, two years earlier, when he first went to the hospital and Layla called me and I busted up in tears and I knew it was the beginning of the end. It just, for the first time, it really hit me. When they said he had a trouble breathing and went to the hospital the first time, he made it home though. I stayed every day in the hospital for a month, went home with him, stayed until he got better. Then I went home. You know, I just took off from work and did not leave. So um, he got better and he was good for two years and he finally passed. I didn't know about a few times of him going into the hospital in between there. They never told us. So I didn't know that he was actually admitted back a few times. But um, in that last time, Layla had just gone to visit him and I said, I'm gonna drive up next the weekend, following weekend and didn't get to. So I got to talk to him a few days before and FaceTimed him and snapped those pictures on the phone. I love you, daddy, Sam, see you soon. And there was a disconnect. Like he wasn't like, uh, his eyes weren't alert with me, but I thought, oh, that's just a sign of Parkinson's. That's some things that happen sometimes depending on the day you get him. I didn't think anything of it. But um, the last picture I had with him, the last birthday I spent of my, my 39th birthday was spent with him. For the first time, I hadn't spent a birthday with him in years. So I got to spend my last 39th birthday with him before he passed. I got to spend his last birthday with him. So I felt like it was so blessed. He got to spend his last birthday with all his kids. I mean, all, he had so many blessings in his passing and leading up to it. And that I was so relieved. So that part of me was like, oh, at peace and relieved. Wow. So when after the passing, you felt... Pain and relief. Because right. I couldn't hug or kiss him anymore. Those are the thoughts that made me cry. Like, oh, I'm never going to hug him again. I can't kiss him again. Like, he's actually gone from the earth. Like, I can't believe it. You know, those reasons. So those are the reasons why I was crying. He lived his life. He lived a full life. Even though he could have been older, he had Parkinson's. So I never really realized the effects and what that took until I would look at someone else that was 74, popping around, driving around, talking. And I'm like, wow. Like, I really would realize just, you know... Yeah, but I didn't, those things like when my father was alive, I would cry. You know, I, like I said, many deaths that we were mourn. He wasn't unhappy, but we, I would cry sometimes for him just because you just, you're sad for someone. And even it's hard, it's quick though, because you know that they, they are not feeling sorry for themselves, but you still can't help but feel bad. But then you think, well, look at our, your blessings. You feel guilty. It could be worse. He would always say, I don't have pain. I'm in no pain. 
You know, he had so much love, so you couldn't really stay in a negative or a sad state thinking of my dad. Wow. He just had that's so much love. Now I understand. There's just yeah. no negativity. No, I'm not. No, me. we're not just saying that. We say that all the time and try to explain to people, but they don't understand. They don't get it because they probably think we're lying or someone wrote that I was in denial. Once I remember when I was a teenager trying to explain this to people when I was even, that's when my dad could still walk. I was like, if you guys only knew, you know, you know what I'm saying? I used to try to tell Marilyn, his caretaker, before she actually was his caretaker, and she thought he could never talk because every time she saw him at the house, he was in a non-talking state, but he was watching and listening to everything. And then when I'd see him before his meds, after his meds, they had side effects, the meds. There was right. pros and cons to them. He was better off them as far as verbally being alert and interacting with you. But the shaking and stuff was controlled with the, with the actual meds. So there are pros and cons. So when he's coming down off the meds, he was always the most clear. So I would get those moments that were like, the, it was like, you know, the sunrise. But. So last question. Uh-huh. Did this book feel like a birth of sorts for you? It's funny you said that because I just did an interview and they asked me, about that, and I said it felt like a birth of a, like a it's like my child for the world. Like this is my gift to the world of experiences that I had with my father because I, I don't have kids. So I thought that's why I look at it like this is my little child. <laughs> it's like it does feel that way. I know that sounds crazy, but it just feels like that to me because it was so difficult, and I and I love it, and I just I, I'm so proud of it because it was so hard to write, and I I wanted to be able to share my father with the world that he's always belonged to. He's always belonged to the world. We've been sharing with him forever. But we've never seen him like this before. Yeah, and I wanted them to know he's human. He wanted people to know that. They forget sometimes. And he was a, probably one of the best people to remind you how human he was. Because daddy was out there and he wanted the people to be able to come up, walk up and touch him, grab him. You know, he was the most people person. He's more down to earth than average people working a janitorial job. Like daddy loved people. He wanted to be with them in the mix, in the middle of them, with them all the time, you know? so. That, that's exactly why I think that, um, I mean, that's for me, it was why it was easy to share some of the personal things because I knew that if he recorded these things, obviously they weren't meant to be secrets. So I wanted them to know this is what he was going through. He's doing it in his own words. You know, he didn't just make it for us. I think it's just for posterity. That's what he's saying. It's like for the future, it's for everybody. It's not just for his kids. So I'm just blessed and glad that he made the tapes. I'm glad that he is was who he was and that I have his blood running through my veins and I love people and my father loved people. And I know that he loved them and he would want them to be, you know, in home. He, he, would want, he would want me to welcome them into our home and to share these things. And he doesn't, he didn't try to, he wouldn't mind even me talking about or sharing the things of him that weren't so pretty because, you know, it's who he was and he apologized. That's why I put the apologies up front, you know, from Thomas Hauser's book, um, he, he's apologizing for the cheating. This is what I did. This is why I did it. And I'm sorry. So that was my reminder to the world and to the critics that are going to judge right up front. You know, remember, he's already apologized for all this, but it's no way to do this book and not tell it. This is what pro- ultimately ended my parents' marriage, you know? So. Well, I got to say, it's just wonderful for me to be sitting here with you. Thank you. Because to think like when I was young mm-hmm. that I would get to be friendly with yeah. Muhammad Ali's daughter, uh, mm-hmm. it would have made me so thrilled. Right. And it's now it's just very human. And it was yeah, right. very human from the first time I met you. Right. And that's, 
That's the beauty. I think that's the beauty of the book. It's the beauty of your dad. Mm -hmm. He made you feel at home. Right. He did. And the door was always open. I mean, literally, like you can just call and say, hey, Muhammad Ali, I'm here to see Muhammad Ali. And he let him in. Yeah. But you know what I forgot well, to say? Well, it's a perfect title, At Home At Home. And you know what? It's so funny because I didn't name this one. You didn't name no, the title? My, I didn't name this book. When I did this book, originally it was just recordings and it was Conversations with the Greatest. Then it became Muhammad Ali K. Daddy. But when it became a memoir and I was trying to figure out what to name it, my editor, Tracy Sherrod, who was my editor of my first book, said, why not call it At Home with Muhammad Ali? I said, great title. And I said, I said, sure. So I got, I mean, the subtitle, but yeah, she named it. Tracy well, Sherrod, the U.S. editor at Amistad HarperCollins, named the book back before it was her book. So when it was just a thought, and I was just like, I need to figure out a name. Well, I think it is I a chose perfect the, title. I chose the cover photo, and I made sure that every single edition, no matter where it's printed, will have this exact same cover and design. So I loved that cover because he's looking straight into the camera. It's casual. When I saw this, it was actually on the Today Show. Matt Lowry did a special and it was a photo that flashed across the screen. I took a picture of the screen. I said, I have to have this be my book cover. And um, I went on a hunt for the, the cover. So that's the story of the cover. And I loved it. And um, it just looks like it was made for this book, doesn't it? Like he took a photo shoot for a book cover. Right. The, the one thing that I forgot to mention that was a huge part of why this book is the way it, it's written is the love letters that he wrote my mother that I discovered. And that was what made it harder for me, too, because reading those letters and he, reading his the pain and the pleading, and in the sorrow, it just made me madder, angrier at her, which is not fair because, you know, she was hurt and had dealt with pains, you know, for years. And his was just more acute at the end, you know, having to deal with it all at once. So I think that um, it was hard to read that and to know that he was so forgiving, but that his sorry didn't change the, the outcome of their marriage. And she didn't even read them until 30 years later anyway. So... That made me mad. I was like, Mom, how could you be just so... That's just my mother, though. She'll put something aside, not look in the box. And that made me mad. And then I thought, but I can't really be mad because everything happens how, how it should happen. And Lonnie was a different type of um, wife. And it's one that my father needed with Parkinson's, I believe. Yeah. So, no, every, I, you know what I mean? I, thank the Lord. So everyone, everyone had their contribution to his legacy and how they gave to him and what they did for him in his story. And God makes no mistakes. So I know all of that, but you can't help but still be mad at your mother or whoever you choose to be mad at. And because daddy can do no wrong in my eyes, even though I know he's not perfect, even though I know his faults, I still don't blame him for anything. And that's unfair to my mother and I know that. So it was a journey. And I haven't forgiven her completely because I'm still have a little girl inside of me. We all do. You know, the little child stays in there somewhere. So that little bit of me still blames her. But even though overall I understand the story and I do realize that it wasn't all her fault. So that was a process, a journey. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. I know that your dad would be proud of you. Thank you. Seeing this book. He would love it. And he got to read. I got to read him some chapters, you know, so that's good. Like he, he knew it was being written, so I would call him up and read him certain things And you know, when I was in the early stages. Never the letters, though. I never told him about it. I think I might have actually said to him, Mommy found your love letters once, or letters that you wrote her once, but I didn't get any detail. I didn't know what he said. He didn't say anything back on the other end. And I didn't want to read them to him or bring it up any further. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to bring it up. He's at peace. And that part is long ago, so yeah. We're going to leave him at peace. He's at peace. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. Tim, you're always taking me to great places. 
want to thank my sponsors, Sportique and WeWork, for bringing it to you. Go to Sportique.com and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount on hoodies, sweatpants, and comfy tees. And go to www.we.co slash CAL for a 20% discount on office space at WeWorks around the world. Want to thank everyone for your encouragement with my crazy idea to bring in a million dollars of new revenue for my business by the end of this month. Million dollar May! Really appreciate your ideas and for pointing out companies that could use my keynotes, workshops, and help with the way they tell their stories. And if you're up for a storytelling workshop in Europe, I'll be at CoCreate in Munich on July 5th and 6th. Thanks to Christoph Weiss for making that happen. Check out www.cokrea.com for details. Listeners can email me with questions as well because I'd love to clink glasses with you in Munich. Hope to see you there. Cheers! Thank you.